TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Enjoy more of the things you love with TCL. I always enjoy bringing you the latest. This is The Scoop. It's The Scoop with Darren Dookie Wolfson from 5 Eyewitness News. And away we go on this Thursday late afternoon, the 22nd of October. This is Scoop Podcast episode... 318. I'll quickly empty out my figurative notebook, then we'll get to a few different conversations. These nine NFL teams will have a scout at TCF Bank Stadium on Saturday to watch Gophers and Wolverines, Rashad Bateman and company, the Dolphins, the Eagles, the Bengals, the Panthers, the Lions, the Falcons, the 49ers, the Colts, and Bills. I do not expect two Gophers offensive linemen starters to play. Curtis Dunlap Jr., I do not expect the guard to play on Saturday. I'm told non-COVID related. And Daniel Falele. Falele. I hope I'm saying that somewhat close to how it's supposed to be pronounced. Daniel Falele, right tackle. I do not expect him to play on Saturday, all other Gophers regulars, I do expect them to play. Arizona and Seattle didn't make offers, but they also had interest in Yannick Ngakwe before the Vikings shipped him off to Baltimore. If the Vikings choose to move pending free agent Anthony Harris, he has fans in Cleveland, Kevin Stefanski and company. The trade deadline a week from Tuesday. It's on election day. That's a whole other topic. Why is it on election day? But the trade deadline is on November 3rd. Tennessee and Dallas, two teams looking for a left tackle when thinking about the possibility of moving Riley Reef. I was on the Mackey and Judd podcast earlier this week. I set the over-under at Vikings trades at one and a half. I think over is a safe bet at this point. The Ngakwe trade came sooner than I thought, although Baltimore on a bye, they won Ngakwe in the lineup for week eight against Pittsburgh. So Baltimore was pushing for the deal to get done right now so Ngakwe can get to Baltimore undergo all the testing, quarantine, all that. I mean, bottom line, the Ravens won Ngakwe in the lineup for that Week 8 game against Pittsburgh. I was texting with a front office official. Where is that text? Oh, shoot, where is that text? I asked him, hey, is your sense that the Vikings are open for business on just about anyone? His response, I think pretty much everyone. That was his exact text back. I think Pretty much everyone. This is a team that has corresponded with the Vikings. Now, does that mean the Vikings are trading Adam Thielen? No, I see Thielen here. Are the Vikings trading Harrison Smith? No, I see Smith here. But I think they are open-minded to moving guys like Reef, like Harris, potentially even Rudolph. Cornerback Marcus Sales, good player up in Canada. He was with the Vikings until mid-August, those first couple weeks of training camp. He is in town visiting. He now has to quarantine, so if the Vikings sign him, it would not be until next week. What else do I have written down? Figurative notebook-wise, scribbled some notes. Star volleyball player Kennedy Orr of Egan did undergo successful ACL repair surgery. Her left knee, the left ACL, so she is out for the season. She is a Nebraska commit. Junior Prince Alegbe of Minnehaha Academy was offered today by Memphis. I just got off a Zoom call with Chaska Junior Mallory Hayer. So she committed to Lindsey Whalen and the Gophers on Sunday. Announced it on Wednesday night on social media. She told Iowa no, Iowa State no. Utah, no. She's been a starter at Chaska since the eighth grade. She's also an excellent 
volleyball player, but her main sport is basketball. She'll join Whalen and the Gophers in two years. Ethan Strauss, who does a great job covering the Warriors for the Athletic, had the note earlier today that the Warriors, Steve Kerr and company, were in Atlanta at P3 Sports Science. That's where Avdia, the really good draft prospect, is training. I've been asked, hey, are the Wolves going to Atlanta to watch Avdia? I'll let you know as soon as I know that. I was told Anthony Edwards is doing something next Thursday, presumably in L.A., although I haven't nailed down the location. Plus, location sometimes can be fluid. Heck, personnel in the building can be fluid based on needing to you know, test negative for coronavirus three times. Bobby Marks will lay out exactly what NBA executives need to do to see these guys in person. But it is a lengthy list. They need to be in contact with the league. It is a complete cluster. Less than a month to go before the draft. Why did the NBA wait this long? Why not allow draft prospects to come to cities? Why do executives have to fly to them, then notify the league, then you know, test negative three times. What about once or even twice? I guess I could understand twice, but three times? It just sounds really, really aggressive. I just know that there are some NBA executives not real happy with all the protocols in place just to go see a draft prospect and not have that draft prospect go against anyone. It's one against zero. It's one against air. But yeah, the plan is for the Wolves to hit the road next week. The question is, have they already hit the road? I am working on that. But the plan is to go see some guys in person. I meant to check on Scoop Podcast episode 317 guest Jorge Polanco, who was remaining in town to get the stitches out of his ankle after that ankle surgery. I meant to check on that. I apologize. I forgot to check on that. But the plan was for him to get out those stitches this week. Then begin rehab, all signs, as he said on the podcast, all signs point to him being just fine come spring training in February in Fort Myers. All right, let me start with Bobby Marks, ESPN NBA analyst, former Nets assistant general manager. He was kind enough to give me over 30 minutes earlier this week. Here's my conversation with Bobby Marks. Bobby, let me start with an anonymous quote. So the Athletic polled a bunch of agents. I don't know if you saw the piece or not. It got published this morning. And so they have all these agents volunteering information anonymously. Let me stress that anonymously. But let me read one quote from an agent about Gerson Rosas. It was piggybacking off something about former Rockets GM Daryl Morey, who, of course, Gerson worked with in Houston. With Rosas and Morey, they are so wired into agenda and media. Anything you say to Gerson... You know it's going to end up on ESPN immediately. And they just don't tell you the truth. Everything is agenda-driven. Very agenda-driven. When I read that, what are your thoughts? I, I laugh a little bit. Um, I mean, I've known – oh, man, I've known Gerson for a long time. I've known him when he was in Houston um, with Daryl. Uh, we've kind of both grew up through it. Uh I don't, I don't believe there's an agenda <laughs> for Gerson Rosas through or ESPN or the athletic or any other media, um, you know, a component there. I think he is tasked with a difficult job of trying to get this Minnesota team from where they were in the lottery to try to build some type of foundation as far as in the playoffs, not just a one-year hit, like continual – uh, success here. So I get it. I mean, I, you know, if that's coming from, um, a, an agent based, I mean, there's so many agents out there that 
Um, all, all I know is it takes one, right? Like just when a team, when we don't think there's a market for a player and he's a restricted free agent, it all takes is one as far as to come in with an offer. So I, as I've, we've talked before, I think Gerson will do a, has done a great job turning over that roster. Um, he's got a tough job coming up in November 18th, as far as what they do, um, you know, with that number one, um, you know, with that number one pick. And if he wants to send smoke signals out there, as far as what they are go going to do and then go in a different direction, we all do it, right? We all do it um, as far as if we're telling a team one thing and we're going to go do a diff something differently. That's just, that's part of the game here. So, um, but I, um, but I, 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 as I said, I like Gerson. I, I trust Gerson. Um, I have a relationship with Gerson. So um, I think he'll, he has done a, a good job and I think he'll continue to do a good job. You're right on the smoke screens, Bobby. I mean, everybody does it. Like, I'll give you one I heard the other day from a team. This team is led to believe that the Wolves don't, quote, love Anthony Edwards or LaMelo Ball. Now, do I think that's true? I don't know. You know, that's where I need to, as a reporter, kind of sift through and figure out, okay, is there truth to that? Is there not truth to that? My comeback to that, though, is the Wolves, as far as I know, you would know this, but I don't think they've even interviewed LaMelo Ball yet. They haven't interviewed Anthony Edwards yet. Like, a lot could change, right? Like, I think Edwards is doing something in Southern California next week. Presumably the Wolves will have a contingent out there. Like, a lot could change after the Wolves meet with these guys. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't buy into the notion that they're not in love with one player or maybe they are in love with one player and they're going to take. This is such a complicated draft process here, you know, where – in the next three or four weeks, they're going to go out and see players. There's, I think they're limited to 10. That's the most on that list. And I mean, just the loopholes to go through it, right. You've got to be, go test negative three times. You've got to, um, you know, if you're going to LA, you've got to, um, you know, you see a prospect and you've got to, you know, you just get on a hop on a plane and go to Vegas. So um, the interview process, as you said, as far as who they've um, who they've interviewed and who they haven't yet. And I, and I said, we still have three to four weeks to figure out who that player is going to be. If it's going to be LaMelo or Anthony or James Wiseman, or they trade it back and get some players to help them win now. Um, there is so much to be flushed out. So when I hear someone say that they're not in love with Anthony Edwards, if I if you tell me that on November 19th or 18th at 10 o'clock, then I'm saying, yeah, they probably were because they didn't pick them. <laughs> so, um, you know, like we I, this this process is like, you know, it, it, it's part of me is like, why are we even bothering going to see prospects? Why are we even going out there? And I know it's a... Um, follow the, the pack type league where if one team goes out to Southern California to see LaMelo ball, then everybody's got to go out because they think they're missing at it. It's like the agent workouts that they have every year. So I think you can get enough on film. I think you can get enough on interviews. I, I certainly think you'll get enough through their medicals. That's I always say the medicals is the most important. And if you see a player work out and he looks like he's in pretty good shape, I think, that's half the battle too. What have they been doing the last six or seven months? So, but to kind of put you through the grind of going city to city and have to test negative through, through the COVID process, I think it's kind of a little bit of a waste of time here. I agree. I mean, the feedback I've gotten, I'm sure you've gotten some of it too, is there's a lot of league people pissed off that it took the league this long just to get to this point. But you're right. The three negative tests, the fact that you can't bring prospects to you, that you need to go see them. Like, I think there's a lot of people pissed off about all this. 
Well, and it's funny because the, um, it's, you know, the agents certainly control the process here. Um, as they, as I always say, the agents control the process up until that player is drafted. <laughs> then it's like, and then they basically hand them off to you and you say, it's, he's all yours. But um, as far as the, to be able to get information, I think if you can, I think if you can get to a certain city, they'll make him a player certainly available to you. Um, that is part of uh, the the deal here. But yeah, the, the loopholes to get to certain cities, um, I'm not envious of. On Wiseman, I happen to think, like his floor, I think is pretty high. I think his ceiling could be incredibly high. Like to me, he might be the safest pick in the draft. But with Carl Anthony Towns here, with the way that Ryan Saunders wants to play, that that you know how Gerson wants them to play, I just don't know if Wiseman is is a logical fit. But the Wolves will do their due diligence. But I'm just curious, what do you think of James Wiseman? Yeah, it's it's interesting with him, and it's kind of goes to that: is, how much separation is there from him with some of the other top prospects, either Lamelo and Anthony? Right? If there's enough separation, and you think he is the number one pick, no matter what. Although you have a concern if he can play with Carl, I still think you can. I still think you go out and you and you draft him. I, I think it's kind of the opposite of what NFL teams do, right? Like if you have a if you have, you know, um, Patrick Mahomes, you're not going to take you know you know the kid from Clemson. <laughs> I mean, that's not like it's not, not going to happen. But I just think where where James is, and I think the knock on him is, and what I've heard is that you know, hey, there's not much of a body of work. Well, shoot, if you had done your homework and you'd gone to the Nike Hoop Festival and you'd seen him in Jordan, you'd seen him in McDonald's and you've seen him during the Team USA. I mean, he did play for Team USA. I think there's enough body of work there. But on the other end, if you think, you know, Anthony's pretty close and Lamelo's pretty close and we don't have much separation, then you probably go more of the, the fit there. And um, there's nothing wrong with drafting a prospect and then build that guy's value up to maybe you get that third star because I don't think, I don't think you're going to get that third star in the draft by moving the number one pick. I think that third star comes either at the trade deadline or maybe a year from now when we're talking and that player is, is rookie of the year and has like, Whoa, like where, like he has really jumped off the chart. Maybe he's untouchable now. Um, I think that's kind of where that, where that goes in that process. I'm with you. I mean, I think, you know, whether it's LaMelo, whether it's Anthony Edwards, whether they end up maybe trading down, but end up with a with an OB top in. I just think whoever they end up with, I think that's just the way Gerson's wired, right, Bobby? That 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 player ultimately is some sort of asset and probably a pathway to get that third star. I'm with you. I just don't see the path to getting that third star pre-draft. Yeah, it's going to be really hard. I mean, especially when you look at Carl and, and D'Angelo not being involved in anything. And then you look at, I mean, you know that roster well. That that pick is going to Golden State in 21. That's slightly protected. So that's an an asset off the um, off the table. And it's just a matter of what is what does teams think of, Cul- of Culver and, uh, and Okoji? You know, that's your, basically your next two best, um, your two best players here. And I don't think you are going to get a, Bradley Beal type player, um, that third level, um, that third level guy. Um, I think it's going to have to be draft or, you know, as we, as we've said before, maybe you move back, maybe you move back to six, seven, eight, maybe you can pick up a couple players for your bench. Maybe you can pick up another draft asset and you kind of go that direction. I think there's a lot of when you're at the, 
when you're in at number one and you're controlling the draft, I think it gives you a lot of options and it's a matter of just flushing them out in the next three to four weeks. Do you buy that the Knicks really like LaMelo Ball? And if so, what is a logical match Wolves and Knicks? So for the Wolves to go from one to yeah. eight, like would the Knicks give up Mitchell Robinson? I mean, even if he's just an asset, maybe not the best fit next to Cap, but an asset, would the Knicks do that? I don't think so. You would probably get one so. of those Dallas first-round picks right from the Porzingis trade, but is that enough to go from one to eight? Well, that's the, that's the question, and it's not like this this Maverick team will be toiling in the lottery, you know, unless, of course, there's an injury. But I would think that both those picks will probably be in play. It's uh, 2021, which is unprotected, and then 23 has got some, some top 10 protection on there. Um, so those aren't as valuable as they probably were two years ago. I think you probably just go down the list of young players, right? When you go through Frank, um, Frank Nikina and Kevin Knox and Dennis Smith Jr. I wouldn't think RJ Barrett would be involved. And then the next guy's Mitchell Robinson. And with Mitchell is that, and he's on a non-guaranteed contract. It'll be guaranteed right when, when free agency starts, he's extension eligible. He's got a great number. He's making $1.7 million. So it's hard for me to see them moving off that unless you love a player, right? Like if you love a player, go up and get them. Like we, I heard during the, the, during the finals or maybe it was the Eastern conference finals on Boston, how they had Tyler hero in their sights, right? They were picking, I think 14 and Miami wound up picking them at 13 and Boston had, I think 14, 22 and 28, right? If you love Tyler Hero so much, take those picks and move up two spots and get them. Like if you, so it's a matter of where that player is on your board, right? If Lamelo Ball is the number one pick for the Knicks and he's hands down, and they think he is a franchise level, then it's going to cost you. Um, if he's not, then you make an offer, um, and it's probably something that Minnesota wouldn't t- wouldn't accept. You think Chicago? It's a decent trade partner there at pick four. Or do you think they're comfortable just staying there at four? And if they are, I mean, there's no way they give up marketing to move up three spots, right? They're not giving up Carter Jr. to move up three spots. I think the only way that if, if Chicago had maybe been at seven or eight, um, then you may be, you're maybe moving up. I think there's so little separation between one and four to cost you a Markin or, or a Carter uh, Jr. I don't think it's worth, um, worth the value. Now, if this was last year, Right. And if when we're looking at Zion or Ja or even, you know, RJ Barrett, um, you know, then it's like, yeah, you know, maybe we will sacrifice one of our players to go up and get a Ja Morant. Right. Zion would not probably would not have been available. But that's yeah, that's kind of the thinking there. But um, I don't think there's enough separation between one and four that you would have to, it would you'd have to give up one of your, your your younger players. I mean, that's the unfortunate thing that the Wolves have had so much bad lottery luck over the years. Right. That they finally, now they landed the number one pick. They had the worst record, but they did land the number one pick that, that ultimately resulted in Carl Anthony Towns. So it's not like they've had zero luck. But they, they finally, when, when you know, everything wasn't totally in their favor, right, they, they get up there, right? They were tied for the, the best chance with two other teams. They end up jumping those teams, end up at pick one. But it's just so unfortunate for this franchise that's had a lot of unfortunate things happen to them over the years, that there isn't this clear cut, like, there just isn't right. Like you're right. Last year, even RJ Barrett pre-draft was considered this really good prospect. There just isn't that guy this year. 
No, not for number, not for number one. I don't think right now a franchise changing Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Davis, uh, Zion or Ja, those type of guys. I mean, who knows two or three years from them? Maybe we can look back on, on uh, the 2020 draft and we might say like, what did we miss? <laughs> right? Like, what did we miss here? And um, that's not the case. I mean, it's, it's comparable. I mean, we had number one in 2000, and we selected Kenyon Martin, but Kenyon was coming off a year at Cincinnati where he had broken his leg during um, Conference USA. Um, the next best player was Mike Miller, Stromile Swift, you know, guy Darius um, Darius Miles, guys like that. I think this draft's a lot better than what 2000 was, but it's a matter of like you might run into a into the situation where you might pick somebody at one, and in a year from now or two years from now, a guy who was selected at six becomes the better player. Now, I think this kind of separates where scouting departments are, right? This is, this is going to be the draft where we're going to see who has some really good scouting departments because it's easy to pick Zion on one and it's easy to pick John Moran at two, but what, what do you do at, at number one here? Some other trade possibilities. So, so two people, you know, well, Bill Simmons and Zach Lowe, their latest podcast. I don't know if you heard it or not. I did. And, and yeah. they made it very clear. It was pure speculation. There's there's no actual steam, but one of the ideas they threw out was was Utah moving Rudy Gobert. One of the possibilities, one of them volunteered, I think it was Bill, volunteered, what about Gobert to Minnesota for pick one? When when you heard that idea, what 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 was your what was your thinking? Um, I've heard worse. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to the James Wiseman, right? Can Rudy Gobert and, and Carl Anthony Towns play together? I mean, that's, that's the big thing. And like, you have to go through it. I always have a, say a checklist, like a step-by-step checklist when you're going through the trade process, as far as like, is that, what is, what is the length of that player's contract? Right. So like Gobert probably wouldn't get a check for me because he's on an expiring contract. Um, the Supermax goes out the window. So he's not super at max eligible in Minnesota. He is extension eligible, but at a lower number. So now you basically have to, sell him over the course of a year on why Minnesota makes sense, right? Compared to having a player on a rookie scale contract for the next four years and likely another four years when you look at his extension. So you're looking at eight years of that one player that you were trading, um, trading away. So for me that unless you, you know that Rudy fits, that he knows he's going to be here, but it's going to cost you, right? You're going to have probably $100 million tied up in Carl, Rudy and uh, in D'Angelo. So that's, um, you know, that's for me would be a big concern. Like I know the name that's been thrown around is John Collins in, in Atlanta. Like, you know, here's a guy, which is different because he, uh, yes, he is on an expiring contract, but he's a restricted free agent. He's extension eligible. Um, you know, would you have to give up one, you know, would one and flipping one and six for him and something else makes sense. Like that's something I would probably more be, more go in that go in that direction there. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. If you could get John Collins in six and you need to move one, even if you need to move one in 33, if if the Wolves could do that, I would do that in a heartbeat. Do you think Atlanta would do that though, Bobby? I just man, John, John's a good player. Yeah, I think if this was maybe two years ago, I think where they are right now, I mean they need to win games. I mean they they're they're at a point because what will happen is you're going you're gonna to get a pissed off all-star and Trey Young, right? Like saying like, all right, I've been through this two years. 
Now I'm on year three and we're doing the same thing over. We're moving out established players and we're just getting draft picks and we're building it that way. And I think when you go out and get Capella and Dwayne Dedman, like they did last all, uh, trade deadline, it's kind of a signal that like, we're going to try to accelerate this um, a little more. So um, it's hard for me, unless the price is, you know, astonishing that you would get back and you can get some players that can help now. So, um, you know, but he's restricted. Um, they have the rights to do whatever, you know, they have, they control his extension and they control his, his free agency next year. One of the other ideas thrown out on that podcast was Charlotte moving pick three and Terry Rogier to here for, for pick one and James Johnson. But to me, the plan, at least as far as I know, Bobby is to re-sign Malik Beasley. So while Terry Rogier is a good player, I don't know where exactly he'd fit in here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, he's got what, two years left at close to $40 million. Um, can he play with D'Angelo? Um, are you content? I mean, I think going from one to three, um, it's the back to that same conversation, how much separation um, is there? Um, and plus Malik's a restricted free agent. So you have the right to, I think that's probably your goal if you're in Minnesota is that you're basically swapping Rozier for Beasley at a higher number, right? Probably five or $6 million more per year, even more. And you're moving back two spots. So that might be a little bit too rich for me. What do you think the Malik Beasley contract looks like? I mean, he hasn't been charged, but yeah. there is that red flag of, of sure. the cops showing up to his to his house here in the Twin Cities. By the way, multiple times. I mean, the night he got arrested, that wasn't the first time that the cops had, had been to his house in, in Plymouth. So I just wonder, do you think that ultimately impacts the, the amount of money that the Wolves will offer him? I, I think what ultimately, yeah, I think it plays into, into it. And I think, I'm mean, sure if you're in Minnesota, you've got your security team as far as you probably have a full length report as far as what it is. I think what will play impact in, into it is, you know, a little bit of that. I think just the market, right? This market, I was going through it um, this morning for some graphics. And um, last year we had 13 teams with cap space. Um, this year we have a projected four. Last year we had 1.1 billion spent in 2019-20 alone in the free agents. That's not total. I think total was like 3.2. This year we're looking at about 400 million. So, I I mean, for me to think that Detroit, Charlotte, um, Atlanta, maybe Miami, maybe Phoenix, New York right, are going to come in with a four-year, $50 million offer. I don't, I don't see it. I, I really don't. I don't see it at all. So now it's a matter of, is there a number that we're comfortable with? Remember, he turned down three for 30 in Denver, right? So is, are we going back to that? Is it, is it the one-year qualifying offer to go back into free agency? But it's, I always say it's once you sign those qualifying offers and there's a track record of it, it is hard to re to earn back what you are giving back. So if you're, if you had the potential to get 30 million guaranteed and it's 11 or 12 million per year, and you're signing a four or $5 million qualifying offer, you're already in the whole 7 million, right? So now you got to go back and try to recoup that in a, a 2021 free agent class. That's going to be potentially pretty good here. So I think if I'm Minnesota, I'm letting the market settle as far as to see where his number is going to be. I'm not afraid if a team comes in with an offer sheet and then you can kind of go from there. Although it won't like half the league, although I, I guess we need some clarity on what the salary cap exactly will be. 
But as of now, doesn't it look like like half the league next offseason will have cap space? Yeah, I think it's going to be in, uh, the, the deciding factor on that is what the number in 21 will be. So if we're going a flat number at 109 this year and, and we see an increase up to 115, uh, it opens it up more. You know, it certainly opens it up more. I think that's something that if you're Gerson, you have to weigh the, the who has room. And then also the unrestrict. Now he's unrestricted. So you do not control the process. So if he plays like he did when you, when they acquired him, that number of, you know, maybe you're offering him, you know, $12 million that maybe goes a little bit, um, goes a little bit higher because maybe now there's more of a body of work here. How do you view the window for the wolves? Like, you know, Gerson oftentimes talks about, you know, long-term vision, right? But what exactly does that mean? Cat is under contract for four more years, Bobby, but you know this, the fear here is that it eventually gets to the point of, of the Anthony Davis situation in New Orleans. So really is the window here like maybe two-ish years where the Wolves need to make a significant jump in two years or it might get to the point of Cat wanting out? Yeah, I think your window is probably two and a half years because you know what happens when you get to that second, when you have two years left on your contract and you are a franchise level player, then we start hearing, right? Then we hear about the trade rumors. He's got value. You can get him for two years. He's not on an expiring contract. He's never won anywhere. Um, so I think that's kind of why your window is probably two, two and a half years. I think it's important for this team, not just not to make the playoffs, but to compete to, for the playoffs. As I say, you always play me- meaning, play meaningful games in, well, it's not going to be March and April, but <laughs> maybe July and August. I think what, to replicate what Phoenix was able to go through in the bubble and play games that mattered um, is important. Oh, we probably won't have a bubble setting, but to be able to, and this, I mean, you know, this Western conference is a bear. I mean, this, you know, when we add golden state back to the mix and, you know, some new, some of these other teams that who are, who are lottery or going to be good in new Orleans and in Phoenix. So I think it's to compete for a playoff spot and then to kind of set yourself up for 2021 22 when when you're one of those top eight teams and then that gives you a lot more to sell um you know for d'angelo and for um you know carl also who do you think the biggest name will be that gets moved here in the in the coming weeks like for me you know maybe it's chris paul maybe it's blake griffin i don't know does boston move gordon hayward hey do the do the clippers move paul george like who do you think the biggest name is that gets moved yeah, it's, you know, I think the, 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 the name that, you know, I certainly has been being thrown around is Victor Oladipo, right? What's going to happen with him? He's got a year left in Indiana. Uh, expiring contracts are hard to move. They're not hard to move. They're hard to get value back um, as far as, you know, it's basically if we acquire him, is he healthy? Um, can we get Victor Oladipo pre-injury? Will he resign with us? How much do we have to give up? That's a lot. I think we're with guys like Chris Paul, you know, he's owed 85 million over two years, but shoot, if you got Chris Paul on 2019, 20, a healthy Chris Paul version, I mean, he can be your quarterback for two years. Uh, I think the same with Blake. I think Blake is kind of, I don't think you do, you know, you, you, you put your foot in the water of the Blake Griffin um, trade talks until you see him on the court healthy. I think that's a lot of money to take back, even though he's got um, two years you know, certainly Bradley Beal will be talked about. Uh, it's hard for me to think Washington moves off him until they see him and John Wall together. Um, so, yeah, those are your kind of your your marquee guys. I don't see Giannis being moved, even if he doesn't sign that Supermax. If you're Milwaukee, you're going to ride that out. I mean, why wouldn't you if he's – unless he tells you he wants to be traded. But if you've got 
one of the best players in the NBA on your roster for a year, I think a lot of teams would uh, would certainly take that. I mean, I suppose, I don't know how big these names are, but a guy like Eric Bledsoe, I bet he can be had. Kelly Oubre in Phoenix is an expiring contract, but he was good last year, I imagine, or I heard this, Bobby, that, that the right offer, you absolutely can get Kelly Oubre out of Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, Kelly's an interesting name. He's making about $14.8 million. Another guy who's coming off an, uh, an injury, didn't play in, in the bubble. And I think the, with um, Mikhail Bridges and um, Cam Johnson, um, I think he made him a little more expendable. I mean, I think that's kind of where you look at if you don't think Kelly is going to be part of your future and you're going to sign him to a long-term contract. Remember, Aiton's going to eventually be extension eligible. Um, you know, you basically have to figure out what you want to do with some of your younger players. Uh, and you've got, you know, Devin's under contract for, you know, the next I think, four years also. So, um, you know, Kelly is your trade piece, you know, Kelly and Ricky Rubio, right? I always thought that, you know, one of those guys would be appealing if you want to try to go into the Fred Van Vliet sweepstakes, right? To kind of clear out some room and to try to put him and Booker together. Um, so that's Phoenix is interesting because they have that taste, right? They had that taste of a little bit of, they weren't in the playoffs, but they had that taste of, being there and if you don't add to your roster you will get buried in the western conference i mean it's just it's just how it is i mean it's it's similar to where like i know uh bill and, and zach had talked about denver and it's like denver too is interesting because they had been a, to a conference finals like all right we've got golden state coming back um we know the clippers are going to be there the lakers are certainly the favorites here like how do we are we content with that current roster that lost in five games to just bring Jeremy Grant back and maybe Mason Plumley, And are we, are we good enough to beat one of those teams? And then that's where, you know, the names of Drew Holiday come about, certainly uh, Bradley Beal. Uh, Holiday's an interesting name because he's got um, this year uh, and uh, in 2021, but he's got a player option, right? So we don't know where the market's going to be in 2021, but I mean, he's in the prime of his career. Um, he's, he's, basically very durable where does he fit with new orleans who are they um you know with with the who you know who they hire as a new coach um are they in a win now mode are they are they still trying to you know at at the rebuilding or retooling phase so that's kind of another um you know interesting name there i'll hit you with two more g league do you have any clarity on on the g league what the g league might look like moving forward with with so many teams not making the the amount of money that they that they normally would make, like I don't know, I'm just I'm curious to to see what the G League looks like moving forward. Well, and it's going to be interesting because this is the first year with a G League. I guess it's a G League select team out in um, out in LA, oh, uh, where you've taken a lot of these high school top high school prospects and put them in this academy. And Brian Shaw is going to be coaching that. So what happens with that group? Um, I, I hope. I know the G league will survive. Um, it's just a matter of when does this thing get going? You know, do we get going? Does it get going when the NBA um, gets going? Do we do a pod system with these G league teams where we're putting four or five teams in a central location and that's who they're just playing against. It's hard for me to think that they're going to allow teams to get on an airplane and fly across country to long Island or Westchester um, I think you're going to probably see more regionalized, you know, teams, maybe not long bus rides, but, you know, certainly short flights. Do you maintain contact with, with LaMelo ball? Last one for you, Bobby, I mean, you <laughs> mentioned previously that, that you had helped LaMelo prepare for, for his interviews. He noted on, on first take, he's already interviewed with the Knicks. 
and the Warriors. I'm positive he's going to connect with the with the Timberwolves at some point. You know, and, and is he still the guy that, that if you were picking one, that that's the asset, that's the talent, the the player maybe with the highest ceiling. I, I as I said before, um, I really enjoyed Lamelo. I, I really did. I think um, you know certainly with his. Um, where he's comes from with his background, with his dad, with, you know, certainly with Lonzo in New Orleans, I think you've, you know, that's going to come into play. Um, he's a 19 year old kid, right? He's a 19 year old that has a ton of talent, um, but has been, you know, played in, um, you know, overseas was in Lithuania. Um, how does he fit with, uh, it's a work in progress. You know, how does he fit with, I think two years from now, Lamelo could be really special. I think it's going to be, a, you know, I think Ryan might be pulling his hair out a little bit for him, but not, not because he's not coachable. Um, I just think it's going to be, you know, he might be a little bit behind where maybe a kid who was in college or two years in college was, um, was a year ago. So it, that's the hard part of this, right? That that's the, as we've been saying, like, that's the hard part of figuring out who the number one player is going to, uh, to be here. But um, he's had, he had a great interview with me. I, I enjoyed my time with them. I enjoyed my time with James Wiseman and along with the other 45 kids that went through the hour of Bobby Marks, uh, tutoring <laughs> that we went through here. And, um, the interview process is important. It's probably more important now than it was a year ago, because I've said this, like when we brought guys into New Jersey and Brooklyn, um, we would work them out and then interview them after. And, if you had a lot of things that you maybe wanted to talk about that player and he will put on a wow performance in that workout, well, maybe your 45 minute interview is now maybe 20 minutes because it kind of his athletic ability gets camouflages. Some of the other questions that you have to try to bring him through the ringer. You don't have that now. I mean, now players are going through 45 to um, uh, an hour uh, interview. It's a grind. As I told one agent, like, um, about one of their prospects. And I said, well, maybe we need to, to reprogram him. Like, because it's like just the repetitive, like process of the same questions. And I think teams need to kind of take that, you know, into consideration that, you know, if you interview a player and you're like, man, he was terrible. Like he didn't do that well. Like, well, shoot, it's his 15th interview and you've asked the same 30 questions, right? Like, how do you think you, you know, if, if you had somebody come on and, and we went through this pod five more times, it's probably not going to be very good compared to this one. So I think that's part of the process. But um, I, as I said, I enjoyed Lamelo. I mean, he was an exuberant 19 teenager that, you know, um, has a lot of loves playing and loves playing basketball. And if you have someone like that and you're not forcing him to come to work every day, um, you know, usually that's half the battle. So it was 45 guys that, that, that you, oh, I think, we, I think I even went through more. I mean, this is the highest I've gone through this year. Um, I think we might even went 55, 60 that we started in April. Um, we've spent, <clears throat> I spent about an hour on each prospect. I usually say if we can get past 30 minutes on each guy where it's a success, like when I'm not pulling, it's like I'm at the dentist and I'm pulling like, you know, like it's a painful, uh, experience, but yeah, I mean, we went, um, you know, we went through about 50 to 55 prospects and I don't charge. There's no fee involved. I enjoy doing it. Good um, for you. Yeah. You know, it helps, it helps. Um, from a relationship standpoint. And um, if their agents want to use me as a resource for their teams to go through it, so be it. And, um, uh, but it's a fun process that I've done the last, you know, two or three years and I enjoy doing it. 
any of the Minnesota kids? I mean, this is a unique draft for for those of us here in the Twin Cities with Daniel Oturu, Zeke Naji, yeah. Tyrell Terry, Trey Jones, even Freddie Gillespie. I don't know if he gets drafted, but I think Freddie's got a chance to make money playing basketball. The the former Baylor power forward. All those kids are from from the Twin Cities. Yeah, I mean Trey, Zeke, and Daniel all um, I all spent some time with. Um, you know, um, you know Trey's a fascinating story just because of his brother and you know playing in you know, from there and going to Duke and, you know, being part of that team that went through, you know, basically the Beatles treatment for a year. Um, so they were all like, you know, the big thing, what I like to do is, and I, I, I kind of um, test your character a little bit. And we, we just talked about the G league is that I, I always put the scenario there is that all these guys are going to probably spend some time in the G league. Either they're going to knock on wood, hopefully not get injured sometime in their career, their fret rookie year, or there's just not going to be minutes, right? And I always put together the scenario like if, if I'm interviewing and I say, um, you know, we're going to send you to Iowa to play for our G League team or, you know, uh, Sioux Falls or one of these other places, um, we're going to send you there for a week. What's your reaction to that? How, what, are you, what's your, what are you thinking? And I want to, I always want to see what their, their mindset is there. And you, it's usually pretty good. It's, you know, I think a lot of it's about education of the G league, like go watch Fred Van Vliet. You think that like, he just got drafted by Toronto. He went undrafted. He would spend time. Look at Duncan Robinson. Duncan Robinson spent time in Sioux Falls, right? Like Kendrick Nunn, a lot of these guys, Pascal Siakam, like they've all had to go through this experience um, it's not like it was 10 years ago when we would send a, we would send a player because he was late for practice to the G league, right? It's not a demerit system. Like now it is a true developmental, um, uh, tool like Nate Yorkman, who just got hired from, um, in Indiana and Nick nurse, like those guys cut their teeth in the G league. So, um, I think you have to, you have to embrace it if you are a draft prospects. And a lot of it is just about kind of the education process. Bobby, your analysis is gold. Thank you so much for, for giving me so much time. I appreciate it. You got it. Thanks. Appreciate it. ESPN's Bobby Marks, former Nets assistant general manager. He is as good as it gets. We'll pick his brain again maybe a couple days before the November 18th draft. On the local guys, a reminder, they've all interviewed with the Wolves. Trey Jones and Daniel Oturu have interviewed a second time with the Wolves. I saw Zeke Naji. It's on my Twitter page, D Wolfs on KSTP. Shameless Twitter plug. I didn't jot down the numbers, but he did his combine testing numbers earlier this week here on Thursday. I'm still awaiting the numbers on Trey Jones and Daniel Oturu, but the numbers for both are said to be very, very encouraging. In fact, at P3 Sports Science in Santa Barbara, a max vertical for Trey Jones was registered at 40 inches recently, 33 inches standing. I mean, that is. Really, really good elite athleticism from Tyus Jones's brother, Trey Jones of Apple Valley. So I'll be curious to see what the official numbers say. All right, let me transition now to Jerry Kill, TCU special assistant, former Gophers coach. The main hook of me talking to Jerry this week was, was to go down memory lane, remember Sid Hartman, but we also talked about his win at the big house, Gophers and Michigan Saturday night, renewing that rivalry. Jerry won in the big house. In 2014 and 2011, he got spanked. The Gophers lost that game 42-13. to 13. No, that was the 2013 game. 
That game would have been in here, right? 2015, was that the debacle or 2016? All the years blend together. The debacle where Tracy Clays was head coach, Matt Limegrover. It was just a debacle at the end of the game where the Gophers had victory in their sights and could not finish it off. But no, it was it was 58 to nothing in Jerry Kill's first year. So that was 2011 as my memory comes back here. 2011, Jerry Kill loses at the big house. 58 to nothing. Then in 2014 goes there, leads the Gophers to a victory 30 to 14. So at the end of this conversation, we review that victory. But on Sid, he was like a grandpa to me. I'm sure it was in large part because I worked with his son Chad Hartman for so long. I started at KFAN Late in 1996, was at KFAN until 2009, was Chad Hartman's sidekick and producer for a number of years after him and Dan Barrero split. So Chad and I were incredibly close, close still to this day. He was nice enough to come to my 40th birthday party pre-COVID back in January. We certainly talk on the phone and text enough. So Chad is a dear friend. My thoughts and prayers and everything is is with Chad. At this point, to me, we need to celebrate Sid's life, right? Like, most of us will never sniff 100 and a half years old. I mean, Sid's life. I mean, it should be a movie. I mean, just an unbelievable career. What a professional, right? I mean, did it in his own way. The most unique human being I've ever met. In my 40 years on this planet, I've never met somebody like Sid Hartman, but he treated me like a grandson. He took care of me. I remember back in 02, I told him I was going to New York. I didn't say, hey, I'm going to a Yankees game or, hey, I'd love to go to a Yankees game. He tells me, hey, let me call George Steinbrenner. I'll get you tickets. So it was a Yankees-Royals Thursday afternoon game, 55,000 people at Yankee Stadium. Sid gets us great seats. I'm with my good friend, John Carter. We drive. He's in Boston, so we actually took the train down to New York, or maybe that was a trip with his dad. Maybe his dad joined us. So I actually got three tickets. So it was John's dad, John, me. We end up in these box seats, like eighth or tenth row, right up between home plate and first base. And it's like 10 minutes before first pitch, and the security guard approaches me. And I'm like, uh oh, did they think Sid was actually coming today? Did Sid somehow, did it get lost in translation? Sid at that point is what, 82 years old? Did the message get lost? Did they think Sid was coming to this game? And they realize it's not Sid, so they don't want us this close. Are we going to the upper deck? Security guard says, hey, Mr. Steinbrenner, George, is sitting up in his, in his box. He's up in his owner's box today. You can have his personal seats. I was told that you're Sid Hartman's guy. George and Sid are tight. You go sit in George Steinbrenner's seat. So at old Yankee Stadium, literally right next to the Yankees dugout, I put some photos on my Twitter page. I mean, the best seats in the house. We had George Steinbrenner's personal seats for that baseball game. In 05, he took care of me. He called Pete Carroll the week of the USC-Notre Dame game. I had mentioned to Sid I was on a college football field trip kick. I had gone to a game in Knoxville to see – Tennessee, I'd gone to a game at the big house, and I wanted to get to Notre Dame Stadium. That was one of those I wanted to check off my list. So I told him, hey, USC, Notre Dame, they play this year. This was like in August or July. I said, Sid, if, if you have a connection, he was like my ticket broker, right? And I'm a punk. You know, I didn't realize, you know, I shouldn't be asking. So I asked Sid, hey, can you help me with tickets? So I don't even think about it. You know, the game is approaching in October. You know, he doesn't get back to me late August, September, two days before kickoff. He says, hey, I have two tickets for you, Notre Dame, USC, on Saturday afternoon. 
So I scramble. It was Justin Guard from the fan and me. We end up driving down there. Thankfully, Justin had some friends that, that went to Notre Dame at the time. So we had a place to crash because all hotel rooms within 100 miles were booked. I mean, that was an enormous weekend. So anyway, we head down there Friday night, have a good time. We partied up Saturday morning, minimal sleep. You know, kickoff was like 2.30. It was like a 2.30 game. And I approach the will call window, give them my driver's license. She hands me an envelope. The envelope says, tickets left by P. Carroll. So we were in the USC section. Tickets left by P. Carroll. So Sid called P. Carroll the week of the game. And Pete took care of Sid. In turn, Sid took care of me. He took me out to eat. I remember one time in 03, watching a Marlins-Cubs playoff game with him at TGI Fridays. I dropped Chad off at his house, and Sid was there. And I forget all the circumstances, but Sid said, hey, you hungry? Let's go grab a bite to eat. I remember walking into this TGI Fridays in the West Metro, and it was like you know Prince had walked in. I mean, Sid was such a celebrity. I mean, just everybody gravitating toward him. He took me for boat rides, his boat on the St. Croix. He just, I'm telling you, he treated me like a grandchild. But we need to celebrate his life. I mean, it's really unfortunate. So many things are unfortunate in this COVID world right now. But imagine if it was normal time. I mean, Sid would have the biggest funeral in Minnesota history. But we can't have a funeral like that right now. For Sid, but let's remember the legend that is Sid Hartman. So let me begin with my conversation with former Gophers coach Jerry Kill. Coach, I wasn't sure the day would ever come. I thought Sid was the bionic man, but one hell of a life, right? I mean, to get to 100, he had a byline in Sunday's Star Tribune. He literally worked, Jerry, until the day he died. Yeah, it is. It, it's unbelievable. I, I tell people I got the news last night and and, uh, you know, I stayed in touch with him, even though I was gone. And, and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I called my wife and, you know, I teared up a little bit. And I, I think the biggest thing is, is that, you know, there'll never be another Sid Hartman and, and he, he's so unique and you've got, there's people out there, you know, that are like that. And, uh, but he was such a unique person and, uh, you know, I think he started what throwing papers when he's 12 or 14 and uh, and then worked his whole life and stayed in Minnesota and 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 worked to the day he passed, which is pretty fitting, you know, in the way he would want to go. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sad day. And there's no question about that. But I think we probably all like to live the life that uh, Sid lived. And uh, so on the other hand. I've had a lot of I've had a lot of good laughs and in in all the stories that uh, that I have on Sid and he probably has on me, but he can't tell them now. <laughs> How did he endear himself to you, Jerry? Like, so you come from Northern Illinois, you had to be thinking as an outsider, who is this old guy that constantly wants my attention? But it was pretty quick the bond he formed with you. Well, it's pretty much I was kind of told about Sid before I came, and then. When I met Sid, he, he informed me that he had full access to the office. <laughs> and I was also told not to cross Sid. So Sid just pretty much uh, let Dan O'Brien know that he was going to come in and see me and, and he was going to go down. And I mean, you know, he, he pretty much, uh, Dan and him worked together and uh, they got me cornered uh, most of the time. As you well know, when we had the press conferences, Sid would wait outside and, and he could he 
he'd give me a hard time when I went in and then he'd want to ask me something else afterwards. But, uh, you know, he was, he was good. He was good. Not only to me, uh, he was good to my wife and, and Rebecca and always said that he liked Rebecca more than he liked me. And I still, I still believe that, which is good on his part. <laughs> I mean, he probably told you what he used to tell me all the time, Jared, like, has your wife come to her senses? Why is she still with you? Right. How are absolutely. you overachieving? Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard that several times. I mean, how about just the fact, I mean, a lot of us try to be somewhat objective. There was no objectivity with, with Sid, Jerry. I mean, he bled maroon and gold. Like he would yell at officials from the press box. Yeah, he was, he was, there was, yeah, there was no, uh, filter. Uh, I would say with Sid when it came to, uh, the go and really any sports team in Minnesota. I mean, he, he was a Minnesota person through and through, and uh, he really made no bones about it. I don't think, you know, he, he is who he is. He said what he said. Some people didn't like it. Some people did, but I always respected it because, you know, that's who he was. He didn't try to be somebody else. And, uh, uh, you know, and uh, like I said, I could tell, story he 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 was a, a person that uh would make you laugh and then and then turn around and and make you frustrated and then you know he was he was good i, I mean on his 100th birthday when i call him you know he couldn't hear so i'm up at the office and i'm screaming happy birthday and everybody up here go what that what are you doing and I said, I'm talking to Sid Hartman and and and, and you know I said so you're just gonna have to bear with me but I finally got him to say, hey, thanks, coach, and felt pretty good. How many silver butter knife steaks did he end up owing you? Did he ever pay up on any of those steaks? Oh, yeah, he did. He did. He always he always gave me gave me one, and I took it. I took advantage of it, you know, uh, when I could. Uh, but, uh, no, he was uh, – he was – you know, like I said, he was a guy that uh, I think biggest – my, probably, I, I was passed along earlier, it's probably one of the greatest memories I've had of Sid was when we kept, we beat Nebraska, and I think it was the first time, I don't know how many years, and he went down the elevator with us, and uh, shoot, there's tears going down his eyes, and I think that's how much it meant to him to see, you know, the football program be successful, but not just football, any program at Minnesota, you know, that uh, – he was associated with, I mean, he was a part of it. He was like having a, you know, coach, so to speak, on, on the side. Was that the 2014 win in Lincoln? I mean, that was also the year you guys also won in the big house, which, you know, that yeah. was unheard of. Yeah, and, and then also when we beat them at home that year. Uh, so, but it was at home that year we came down the elevator. And, uh, but our, or with our coaches. And, uh, but he, uh, <laughs> he he and our coaches did our system coaches loved the guy from Tracy plays on I mean they they really did he'd come in and you know if he didn't get if he didn't get what he wanted from me he went right down the line until he got what he wanted <laughs> I'll let you go after this Jer while I have you do you remember that win at the big house we're building up the the Minnesota Michigan rivalry this week David Cobb yep. was unbelievable that game I mean you guys scored 30 unanswered points that was an unbelievable afternoon when you guys won at the big house. Yeah, it, it was certainly when, you know, the, I think my first year we got beat 58 to nothing. And, 
and then go up there and win in the big house. And, and, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's a feeling I, I, I certainly will never forget, uh, you know, coming from a small town and, and being there and winning that game and watching those kids carry that jug around. And, and, uh, you know, there's nothing better. There's just no, no better feeling, but the best thing was is somebody that was new to the rivalry is how much that jug meant to all the people in Minnesota. Cause as soon as it got back, you know, it gets passed around and, you know, until you live in those, in those moments and the traditions and rivalries and all the things with the acts, all those things is that until you're there, you don't know how big a deal it is. And uh, so uh, it was, you know, I had so many great times. I, I just said not too long ago, I, I don't know if I've ever been the same since I left Minnesota, to be honest with you. I crashed and burned and gave everything I had, but I, I, I don't know if I've ever been the same. And, uh, and the, the people were great. And, uh, you know, you always have people that are upset and so forth. But uh, overall, I, I mean, I, I have, have no regrets. And, 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 and uh, you know, I, I think a day like today uh, makes you look back on that a little bit. And, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, tell everybody hi for me and, uh, and, uh, you're, you, you've done a super job yourself and had a good, good career. So you continue it and, uh, uh, take care and God bless. I keep fooling a lot of people, Jerry. It was good to see you stay healthy and I'll be in I touch. Will. Okay. Sounds good. So the game he was referencing, the Nebraska victory, was here, 2013. So they won in Lincoln 2014, but 2013, Jerry Kill was working that day from the press box. So he wasn't on the field for that game, but that was a Gophers win over Nebraska, the first win over Nebraska in, like, forever. So the fans stormed the field. That was the game where he was up in the press box, so he would have ridden the elevator down with Sid after that 2013 Nebraska game. Finally, by the way, I referenced David Cobb's game, that 2014 game at the big house. He ran for over 180 yards, had over 50 yards receiving. I caught up with David Cobb earlier this week. He's looking to get into coaching. He's living in Austin, Texas. He did an internship during training camp with the Tennessee Titans virtually. He wasn't in Nashville. It was virtually, but now he's looking to get back into some sort of coaching capacity. I know that Pete Najarian tried to get him in with his good buddy Ron Rivera at Washington, but with everything COVID-related, it's pretty tough right now. But David is open-minded. doesn't have to be an NFL job. David just wants to coach in the, in the coming year. So if you're curious what David Cobb is up to, it's that. Plus, I went down memory lane with David about that 2014 win at Michigan, his unbelievable performance. That interview is available on the KSTP website, the sports page. So if you go to kstp.com backslash sports or just Google David Cobb KSTP, I did that interview with David earlier this week just for sake of time here on this podcast. I won't replay that conversation. I will finish with Patrick Royce, now the senior scribe here in the Twin Cities. Patrick has any number of Sid Hartman stories. Heck, I could have talked to Patrick the other day for five hours, but we ended up talking for like 15 minutes. Let me replay that conversation now. Here is the one, the only, Patrick Royce. Patrick, I thought he was the bionic man. Like, I didn't think the day would come. I didn't think he'd, like, when you survive getting hit by a car in your 90s, right? You survived slipping on the ice at, what, 96? 96, broke his hip. Uh, I always remember about that is Lavelle Edwards, who was like a 
tough old bird you ever saw. Broke his hip the same week Sid did, and he lasted two days, and he was like 88 and looked like a guy that captured the South Pacific all by himself. But Sidney was uh, indestructible. I'd heard that he was declining some uh, this past week, but, well, I'm sure for a while, but that he'd rallied so often that uh, no one really, you know, suddenly it was, everybody was alarmed on Saturday night and Sunday, but uh, I don't think it was anything particular. It was just being a hundred and a half. That'll, that'll happen to a fella, but uh, we will never, uh, and you knew him well, uh, we will never run into another one of these guys. We always say that, but in this case, it's immensely true. I don't know how many people have roamed this planet since the start of time, but there's this is he's unique among all the hundreds of millions of them. Yeah, I mean, there's any number of examples, but like, think about it. He covered George Mikan, and he covered Carl Anthony Towns. Oh, even more. He was selling newspapers and sneaking into the Memorial Stadium. I think it was Memorial Stadium by then to watch Bronco Nagurski in 2000 and in, in 1929. And in 2017, he saw uh, Rodney Smith breaking some, was covering Rodney Smith breaking Broncos records. Uh, it was, uh, it's phenomenal. It, it is really phenomenal. And uh, the, I, I tried to write this in a column. He was, a, he was the most driven person I've ever seen. And, uh, uh, you know, he was, uh, there's a famous quote from my dear friend Dark Star when asked what uh, the uh, what his theory of his radio show was. It was uh, what can the next three hours do for me, Dark Star, and Sid pretty much had that philosophy of his last 92 years of life. Uh, I mean, it was uh, he was always uh, wondering. Uh, uh, you know, there was. There was everything he did was tactical. Everything he did was tactical. It was to, it was to, you know, he brought Denny Green's kids bicycles for Christmas, not because he loved Denny Green's kids. <laughs> he wanted his in with Denny, you know. So I mean, he was always, and it and it certainly succeeded. It got worked, him, right? Like more, even though you have the podcast, the scoops. He was the scoop monster of all time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and for yeah. the first. It, you know, the world changed in the mid-90s when national ESPN guys and all of, you know, were getting all their stuff from agents and stuff like that. But when it was, when it was just basically a battle of newspapers, uh, he was uh, damn near undefeated. How did he get the access that he did? I mean, like Randy Moss thought we were all scums of the earth, probably <laughs> still does to this day, yet with Sid... Like Randy and Sid were like this. Yeah, if you if you didn't mind the slurs that uh, Randy cast at him, and Sid could shrug those off. But uh, I, I think you know Randy. He wasn't the brightest guy in the world, but he was intuitive, and he knew that uh, if he if he romanced this guy, he he'd, he'd always take Randy's. You know, I mean, all you got to do is read his stuff. He always took the side of. Uh, of the uh, you know the owners and management and the teams and he always and if you were like well disre if you were disregarded by the rest of the media Sid saw an opening to buddy up to you Bobby Knight George Steinbrenner uh, Billy Martin one of the most miserable louts that's ever walked the planet Sid and he were as tight as could be uh, you know he also would 
buddy up the good guys. I mean, Bud and him were as close as it gets, but uh, I think he, I th he always was looking for his openings of inns, and he got them with some uh, interesting characters, to say the least. There was a heart there, though, right? Like, oh yeah. I mean, he yeah. he told me with you know with Drew dealing with some health issues. I mean, he said, "Hey, do I need to make a phone call?" Yeah, oh yeah. He right? Could, like, I'll get you in with the best yeah. doctor. Oh, you could be, uh, you know, you could lose all four limbs in a train wreck, and he'd try to get you to Mayo because they'd let him grow back or something. I mean, he was he was convinced. In the, nobody was more convinced in the. Miracles available at the Mayo Clinic than Sydney. He was, uh, he loved the Mayo Clinic, man. And in fact, I think, isn't one of his explanations how the Vikings, I, I can't remember, was it the twins of the Vikings? I, th I think it was the Vikings when they were trying to get the expansion team that some male from, some doctor from the Mayo who was yes. his pal. I think I remember got him got inside the owner's room because he'd treated Carol Rosenblum or somebody and basically we got the Vikings because Sid knew a doctor from Mayo Clinic. I, I was writing the book. The the only he's the only sports writer who had to hire a sports writer to write his book. And ninety six I think we released it or ninety seven. And it was an interesting experience and I, I took like a week off and went out to California and this uh, we sat on the ocean and my wife was with me and I was hacking away one night and I said, well, he brought us the Lakers and won the championships. He got their Gophers to the Rose Bowl and uh, he uh, got the Twins here. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think he got the Vikings, but I still got to go through the transcripts to be sure. And I was up like four or five hours and then at eight in the morning I told my wife, I was wrong, he got the Vikings here too. So Sid was, uh, uh, he was an insecure egotist. And I think the insecurity drove him for life. I mean, he was he was 100 years old, had more money than any sports writer in the history of the Twin Cities and he was still insecure and still mad when Doogie had a scoop on him. I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing how driven he was. There's no doubt about it. To that insecurity, I mean, you two butted heads. But that was the beauty of your oh, relationship yeah, but, with but, him. But I could, you know, like the last one of the last times he saw me, he said, "Boy, you're writing some great stuff. Or great, you're writing some great columns." I said, "Name one." And he, oh, I don't know all of them. <laughs> you know, he, he just he. It was a funny thing how he'd insult you and then come back and compliment people because he. He wanted you to know that he didn't agree with you, but that he still didn't. He wanted you to still be his buddy. I mean, I, I was a copy boy in 1963. I've known him for 57 years, and did I love him? Ten days a year, <laughs> you know, ten days a year, three, three fifty-five. It was God said. It wasn't. I was never. It never got to the point of serious dislike, but. You always had to remember that you would never see another person like this in your life and that he was a, a marvelous, unique character and the fact, and, and you know, there could be psychological papers written on what drove him, but uh, I mean, he, you know, everybody said it, you know, the morning he died, he had a column in the newspaper. Uh, you know, and 
shockingly, it was a positive look at what lied ahead for the Vikings. It was, uh, it was, I told them, last time I was able to talk to them, I told them, you, during the pandemic, have turned into a bigger homer. You were the biggest homer in the history of Minnesota sports, and you've upgraded your work. <laughs> you, have, you have reached new levels of uh, homer. Oh, is that right? You know, so it was, uh, I, I'm glad I had the relationship with him, and I'm glad that I got a chance to write his book. And I'm glad for all those times he screamed at me and told me what a, what a negative, I don't know. I don't know where I was on the list of negative geniuses, but I had to be in the top five, don't you think? But at least you were a genius. Yeah, I was. Yeah, well, but he's the only guy who could use genius in a derogatory <laughs> yes. term. That was another thing. Genius as a derogatory term, that made him unique, too. If you were a genius, you were an idiot. It was just the opposite. But uh, we were talking about some of the great pranks. We played him at the Star Tribune. We had some great pranks. Dennis Bracken was one of our guys and basically devoted the, his life to coming up with pranks on Sid. But Sid's idea was a prank was like to come over and break your computer or something. I mean, he just, he was, you know, his prank was to like hit you with a hammer or dump a bucket of water over your head. Not a lot of subtlety about the man, that's for sure. But you know what? There were times where he was the butt of the joke, Patrick, and I'm not quite sure he quite comprehended oh, that he was the butt of, of the joke. A lot of times, a lot of times. But uh, he, uh, it was fun. <laughs> Some of the greatest times I had with him was after the sports show. We would uh, often stop at the Perkins out on, on 394. Maxie, Dark, him and I. And I was sort of the stand back and listen to Dark, Maxie, and Sid argue about who had what scoops and who had what access. And uh, and it was, I mean, he and Dark had this mutual loathing for each other, and yet they would give each other gifts and stuff. I mean, they would there would be those moments every year where they'd make peace and, and uh, and uh, and that that was kind of Sid's life. He, he, I wouldn't say he and I never had the don't talk to each other period. You know, or it never got that bad. We, I always, you know, if I, you know, if I knew something was going on, or he knew something was going on, or I'll never forget the greatest scoop he ever gave me though. That that scoop, but the greatest call he ever gave me was in spring training the twins, and he said Carl Pollard was like 80, right, late 70s and whatever year it was, and he said, hey, it was one of the SIDS last year, so it had to be the late 90s that he came to spring training. And he said, hey, you gotta go down there and do a column on Polad's mother. I said, Polad's mother? What are you talking about? I said, yeah, he said, yeah, she's, she's down there. I was just talking to her, and she was, I think, 102 or something at that time, sharp. I went down there and got this great column about a Polad's mother. Said, said, I mean, because he, he knew I could write something like that, and that he couldn't, you know. So, uh, he, you know, he was, he was willing to concede that, and uh, he, he admitted he wasn't a writer, which was a great safety mechanism for him, that uh, that he could, you know, just say, I'm a reporter, I'm not a writer. You guys, you guys are writing all that stuff, and he's right. I mean, he. He, he was the, you know, we were writing these f essays and with 
nice sentences in them, and he was getting three times as many readers as the rest of us. So he he always had the readers, and if they if he'd heard that there were a reader survey taken or a numerical thing of who's being read, and then he discovered that you could find out how many internet hits there were later on. I mean, he drove he drove those guys nuts to reaffirm his standing as, as the man. And it was TV and radio ratings too. Anytime he was yeah. on Sports Rap here, okay. what were the ratings? Did we beat <laughs> Rosen, right? I mean, oftentimes he wanted to know how we were doing over at the fan, Chad and I, and mm -hmm. he wanted to know what his Sunday morning ratings oh, yeah. were. Oh, wanted yeah. to make sure that he was winning that time yes, slot. Yes, 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 he, he was, there was nothing, there was nothing he was ever involved in uh, that he didn't want to win. That he that Chad told me last night. He says, you know, Chad's been in sports. He's now not so much in sports, but most competitive person he's ever met, including athletes. And I think that's probably true. You know what though? He was one hell of a grandpa. Those grandkids yeah, he was good. Yeah. kept him going. He was a good. Well, he made some mistakes as a dad. Oh, well, but as a grandpa, I can tell you, a plus. This is, this is probably not for TV, but uh, when Chad was ten. Sid was, Sid was a hero that he didn't drown him. <laughs> he was, and to see Chad turn into the great human being he was is a is a miracle of our time. Because I, you know, I go back with these guys to when Chad was born and seeing him in spring training and seeing him at the place. And it's nice to be able to be like the almost a Sid historian as far as people who are left in town here. I mean, Jim Klobuchar and Jim's not. Not doing real great, but uh, you know, as I said, that this is a day I feared though, because I I never had to be the sage of Minnesota. You're it. <laughs> now I'm the sage. Yeah, you're I, the I senior sports senior, writer in town, Patrick. I got seniority now, boy. How many guys had to wait till they were 75 to be the sage though? Because I am. It's unbelievable. It's uh, he's uh, you know the most unique. I mean, I've met a few of them, Calvin and all kinds of them, but he's the most unique individual I've ever met. And I'm not just saying that because he's no longer with us. I mean, that's 100% the most unique guy ever. And took a long time to figure him out. You know, like, what in the hell? I mean, I'm going to talk to Kevin Seifert later today, and I'm, I'm going to, the perspective of guys who weren't from here, who came to town and saying, what? They had to say, what is this? What is this raving man yelling at the officials during a gopher game and being walking through a stadium and having 5,000 people say, hi, Sid. For an outsider, it had to be unbelievable to see, see the, I don't want to say adulation, I don't want to say adoration, but recognition, the recognition is unbelievable. The storytelling by Royce cannot be topped. That's where we will end this podcast. Patrick, by the way, people don't know this. A lot of people don't know this, but the ultimate teddy bear, I mean, he lays out the red carpet for my family, lets the boys go over to his house to go swimming in the summer whenever they want. Let's Laura and I, my wife and I, head down to his condo in Fort Myers. I mean, literally, whatever I ask of Patrick, he is just right there. So, Patrick, I'm telling you, I don't know if he always has that reputation, but hopefully it's, it's starting to pick up a little bit. Just know this. Patrick Royce, 
one giant teddy bear. But yeah, I mean, that's the way we'll wrap up this podcast, that storytelling. There's there's literally no way to top the genius of that Patrick Royce storytelling about the late, great Sid Hartman. We're done. Scoop podcast episode 318 is in the books. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay sane. Stay safe.